0: This is
1: Democracy Now. The residents of Khartoum woke up to heavy sounds of gunfire, its explosions. Um, and then we found out that it's not restricted to one area. This was happening all over the city, the tri-state area, Khartoum, Durban, Bahri. Uh, and then we found out that this is actually happening in other cities around uh, Sudan, where the rapid support forces and the Sudanese armed forces uh, have erupted in, in conflicts. Nearly a hundred civilians have been
0: killed in Sudan and heavy fighting between the Sudanese military and a rival paramilitary force. Could this lead to civil war? We'll go to Khartoum for the latest. Then, to a leading Ugandan LGBTQ activist who's risking his life by traveling to the United States to speak out against a recently passed Bill in uganda that criminalizes anyone identifying as
2: lgbtq this interview that i'm having now if i had it in uganda the studio the entity myself would be criminalized this legislation is here to erase the entire livelihood of the lgbtq person in uganda
0: And then, not too late, changing the climate story from despair to possibility, we'll speak to longtime Filipino climate campaigner Red Constantino and the award-winning writer and activist Rebecca Solnit.
3: We can sort of leave the age in which fossil fuel politics, which have been so grotesquely corrupt as we, you know observed the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq by the U.S. government. Um, but also, a lot of, you know, we don't just have to change the energy system. We have to change the culture.
0: I think we have to change our, what we value, how we measure wealth. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Sudan is roiling from a third day of violence that's killed nearly 100 civilians and injured hundreds more since Saturday as rival leaders of Sudan's military government battle for control of the Northeast African nation. There are reports of heavy artillery fire in the capital Khartoum, explosions at Khartoum's main airport, airstrikes on military barracks and bases in cities and regions across Sudan. The violence pits two factions of Sudan's military establishment against one another. One is led by General Abdel Fattah al-Baran, who's been the de facto leader of Sudan since the overthrow of longtime ruler Omar al-Bashir in April 2019. The other faction is led by Lieutenant General Mohammed Hamdan, known as Hameti, the former commander of the Janjaweed militias responsible for murders, rapes and torture in Sudan. Darfur region. The World Food Program has halted all operations in Sudan after three of its employees were killed and a U.N. humanitarian aircraft damaged at Khartoum's main airport. The United Nations, the African Union, the United States, Russia and China are all calling for a ceasefire in Sudan. The African Union's Peace and Security Council has warned against external interference. The fighting has dashed hopes of a civilian-led democratically elected government a key demand of protesters who led the mass mobilizations in 2019. That led to Al Bashir's ouster. After headlines will go to Khartoum for the latest. The U.S. Supreme Court Friday temporarily restored access to the abortion pill mifepristone, but only until Wednesday in order to further review a lower-court decision which banned the country's most popular abortion method just one week earlier. Meanwhile, The Washington Post reported Matthew Kozmarek, the conservative Trump-appointed judge who issued the ban on mifepristone, removed his name as the author of an anti-abortion and anti-trans law review article, and did not disclose the article to the Senate Judiciary Committee as he was going through the judicial nomination process. Rallies to defend abortion rights took place across the United States this weekend. Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis has signed three bills into law protecting access to abortion and gender-affirming care, upholding what he called Colorado's reputation as a beacon of freedom and choice. Among other things, the measures shield people who receive, provide or assist in abortions or gender-affirming care from criminal prosecution or lawsuits in other states where they are outlawed. In Ukraine, a Russian missile attack on a residential neighborhood in the eastern city of Slovyansk killed at least 11 people Friday. This comes as Ukraine says the bloody battle for control of Bakhmut has reached unprecedented intensity. In Russia, the prominent opposition figure, Vladimir Karamoza, has been sentenced to twenty-five years in prison for treason for condemning Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. The Russian British former politician helped make the case for Western governments to sanction Russian officials and said his country was committing war crimes. In a statement last week, Karamoza said, quote, I know the day will come when the darkness engulfing our country will clear, our society will open its eyes and shudder when it realizes what crimes were committed in its name," he said. Meanwhile, the Brazilian president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, said he is working on forming a group of leaders that, quote, prefer to talk about peace rather than war, in hopes of ending the conflict through diplomatic
2: means. President Putin does not take the initiative to stop. Zelensky does not take the initiative to stop. Europe and the United States contribute to the continuation of this war. I think we need to sit at a table and say, that's enough, let's start talking, because war never brought and will never bring any benefit to humanity.
0: President Lula, who was speaking from Abu Dhabi, said he discussed joint mediation efforts with the United Arab Emirates as well as China, which he visited last week. In China, Lula also focused on rebuilding Brazil's diplomatic relationship with Beijing and agreed to expand cooperation on trade, technology and other areas. In India, two high-profile politicians were shot and killed on live television Saturday while in police custody in the northern city of Priyagraj. Atik Ahmed, an organized crime leader who also served in India's parliament, was shot in the head, as was his brother Ashraf Ahmed, a former legislator in Uttar Pradesh state. At the time of the murders, the brothers were being escorted in handcuffs to a hospital for a medical checkup. The assassins were swiftly arrested by police.
4: According to primary information, three men came, posing as media personnel, and started firing. Three people have now been arrested, and they are being interrogated. And Atik and Ashraf died in this incident.
0: Both victims were from India's Muslim minority. One of the assassins was recorded chanting a slogan popularized by Hindu nationalists and anti-Muslim campaigns. French President Emmanuel Macron has signed into law a hotly contested retirement overhaul, which raises the retirement age from 62 to 64 years old and extends the years of work required to receive a full pension to 43 years. The Constitutional Council on Friday ruled in favor of the measure after Macron and his party had to force it through by executive action, given its widespread unpopularity, including among lawmakers. Protests continue as union leaders seek to ramp up the pressure on Macron.
3: For three months, there have been extremely important strikes, demonstrations, and our determination is not weakened. This will relaunch the mobilization this evening. For the first time since the end of the Second World War, unions jointly call on all employees to massively demonstrate on May 1st to win the withdrawal of this reform.
0: In Japan, members of the G7 have vowed to speed up the phase-out of fossil fuels and the transition to renewable energy, aiming to reach net-zero emissions by 2050 by boosting solar power and offshore wind capacity. But the group of ministers could not collectively agree to a 2030 deadline for phasing out coal, a goal pushed by Canada and other members. The group also refused to cut off investments in gas. Elsewhere in Japan, the foreign ministers of G7 nations are convening for three days of meetings to discuss the Ukraine war, China and North Korea, protesters gathered near the train station in the resort town of Karoizawa as officials arrived on Sunday.
3: The objective of G7 to hold talks only among developed countries in the first place is questionable. I have doubts about the purpose for them to have a meal together to talk about the opinions of poorer countries and the countries that are currently at war.
0: World leaders will meet in Hiroshima next month for the official G7 summit. Back in the United States, in Georgia, over 600 prisoners are being transferred from the Fulton County Jail after the family of a dead prisoner says he was eaten alive by insects and bedbugs in his cell last year. The family of 35-year-old LaShawn Thompson, who is being held in the jail's psychiatric wing, is demanding a criminal investigation and that the jail be shut down. The U.S. marked another deadly weekend of gun violence in the small town of Dadeville, Alabama. A shooter opened fire in a room full of teenagers celebrating a Sweet 16 birthday party, killing four people and injuring 28 others. Among the dead was the star student-athlete, Phil Dowdell, who was remembered by a coach and teacher at his high school.
2: Great student-athlete, you know, um, not only did he um, win— Not only did he win uh, the 100 200 last year, but, you know, he set goals to be able to plan to be able to win that. And just, he's so goal-oriented. I always had a smile on his face, um, to just willing to help anybody.
0: Elsewhere, a shooter opened fire on a crowd of hundreds in a park in Louisville, Kentucky, killing two. This came as Louisville is still reeling from the mass shooting at a bank last Monday that claimed five lives. A shooting in West Oahu, Hawaii, left two people dead Friday. Meanwhile, in Kansas City, Missouri, a black teenager was shot and hospitalized after accidentally ringing the wrong doorbell while trying to pick up his siblings. And in Nashville, a seven-months-pregnant woman, was rushed to the hospital last week where she had an emergency C-section after she was shot by a Walgreens employee who said he suspected her of shoplifting. The employee claimed self-defense, even though he followed her into the store's parking lot where he opened fire. In Indianapolis, top Republican hopefuls for the 2024 presidential nomination joined the three-day annual meeting of the National Rifle Association over the weekend. Headlining the event was Donald Trump, who received a two-minute standing ovation before declaring himself the most pro-gun, pro-Second Amendment president in U.S. history. With me at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, no one will lay a finger on your firearms, just as took place for four years when I was your president. I will also create a new
3: tax credit to reimburse any teacher for the full cost of a concealed carry
5: firearm and training from highly qualified experts.
0: And in New Jersey, faculty at the state-run Rutgers University have suspended their strike and are returning to classrooms today after reaching tentative deals on pay increases, job security, and union representation. These include a 48 percent raise for adjunct faculty, 33 percent raise for graduate workers. The first faculty strike in Rutgers' 257-year history was organized by three unions representing over 9,000 professors, lecturers, graduate assistants, and researchers. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The United Nations, the African Union, the United States, Russia and China are all calling for a ceasefire in Sudan after fighting between the Sudanese military and a rival paramilitary force have left nearly 100 civilians dead since Saturday. Hundreds of civilians have been injured. The actual death toll is believed to be much higher. The heaviest fighting has been in the capital, Khartoum, around the Republican Palace, the army headquarters, and the international airport. The fighting's pitted Sudan's military, led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, against a powerful paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, led by Lieutenant General Mohamed Hamdan, known as Hemeti. General Abdel Fattah al burhan has been the de facto leader of Sudan since the overthrow of the longtime ruler Omar al-Bashir in April 2019. Mohamed Hamdan is a former commander of the Janjaweed militias, which was responsible for murders, rapes and torture in Sudan's Darfur region. The fighting's dashed hopes of a civilian-led democratically elected government, a key demand of protesters, who led the mass mobilizations four years ago that led to Abashir's ouster. The finding stems in part from a dispute over how the paramilitary rapid support forces would be integrated into the Sudanese military. The deadly clashes have also impacted humanitarian efforts in Sudan. In North Darfur, three employees of the World Food Program were killed, forcing the U.N. agency to temporarily halt all operations in Sudan. In addition, a U.N. humanitarian plane was significantly damaged at Sudan's airport in Khartoum on Sunday. We go now to Khartoum, where we're joined by the Sudanese activist Marine Alnil. We welcome you back to Democracy Now!, Marine, Can you explain what's happening in your city, in the capital of Sudan, in Khartoum?
1: Good morning, Amy Goodman. As I'm speaking to you right now from Khartoum, we're hearing airstrikes, um, we're hearing fighter jets, we're hearing um, different uh, kinds of explosions that we're not aware. What are they exactly? I think what is not clear when we're saying, when in the international media, we're we're talking about the clashes being around the military headquarters, around the presidential palace, and around other military buildings, that these buildings are in the middle of the city, very close by to residential areas, not meters away from any of these buildings. There are neighborhoods, that are uh, populous, there are many uh, residents living there and um, these clashes are happening in between these buildings. Uh, The the people, the civilians are caught in the middle of the clashes and are uh, being uh, affected and the casualties, as you said, are probably much higher than reported because people are not able to reach hospitals, we're uh, not able to reach medical attention uh, many have been shot on their ways to uh, hospitals and, and, and medical attention, uh, and the streets are, are not safe. The ceasefire that was announced yesterday had absolutely no manifestation on the ground, and I think uh, the Sudanese people were aware of that. Uh, uh, the Wrapped the, the Support Forces, uh, the Sudanese Armed Forces and the UN, all the parties that were announcing this uh, ceasefire or the truce that were supposed to provide safe routes are not credible for the Sudanese people. And, and it, it was shown to us when uh, 4 p.m. came, the time for the truce. actually uh, the, the explosions were louder. There were many more gunfires that were being heard by uh, uh, residents of Khatoum. And people were frantically um, trying to warn each other to, to not believe the ceasefire, to not go out of their houses, to stay sheltering in place.
0: I am so sorry you're speaking to us under such duress. Um, I wanted to play for you Sudan's former prime minister, Abdel Hamdak, urging warring parties to reach a ceasefire.
4: I speak to you today as our country faces the danger of separation, and I say to you that when a bullet is fired from a weapon, it cannot tell the difference between the attacker and those being attacked, and the victims are the Sudanese people. My first message is to General Abdel Fattah al-Bran and the leaders of the Sudanese military and to Mohammed Amdan Dagalo, and the leaders of the Rapid Support Forces. The exchange of fire must stop immediately and the voice of reason must rule. Everyone will lose, and there is no victory when it is on the top of the bodies of our people.
0: Now, he's the former prime minister for a very brief period of time. Um, But for people who are not understanding this conflict and what happened after uh, Bashir was thrown out in April of 2019, go back in time and explain how uh, what we're seeing today is unfolding, Maureen.
1: The 2019 popular revolution um, uh, ousted President Omar al-Bashir, and uh, immediately the the military took over, and uh, the the political powers at the time, the uh, forces of freedom and change, uh, immediately entered in negotiation with the military, uh, causing a lot of uh, frustration. Uh, amongst the people who have given their 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 lives and souls uh, to the revolution, as we knew that these negotiations uh, do not meet our demands, we we did not want to enter into negotiations. We we wanted an immediate um, uh, exit uh, from the power uh, uh, when it comes to the military, and we wanted an immediate. Um, uh, uh, transition of power to a civilian uh, government. However, the negotiations are what led us to, to to this moment, and we hear statements such as the one that we just heard from uh, former uh, um, prime minister uh, Abdullah Hamdouk, uh, we hear them with a lot of frustration, because this is the transitional government that, when was in power, uh, empowered the Sudanese armed forces and empowered the, the, the rapid support forces and further legitimized them. Um, And and this is what led us to a a situation of a full-blown conflict.
0: So, on Sunday, Sudan's fighting factions agreed to a three-hour humanitarian pause from 4 to 7 in the afternoon. Did that actually happen? Uh, That's simply an indication of what could happen. And talk about all the different countries that are now weighing in, if that matters—
1: Uh, The the, uh, truce did not uh, manifest on the ground at all. Um, There was uh, continuous um, airstrikes and and gunshots and explosions being heard by people sheltering in place. Um, And we we did not think it was credible. We did not think it was going to happen. And and, uh, they proved us right, that they are not serious about this truce, the same way that they are not serious in their interest uh, for the well-being of the Sudanese people. Um, And um, as for... Or the the, the foreign entities, the the regimes that are uh, backing the rapid support forces or the Sudanese armed forces, um, which have switched sides. Uh, You could say that maybe um, for the time being the support forces is backed by Russia, while the Sudanese armed forces is backed by Egypt. There are other players such as the United States or the United Arab Emirates, and all of these anti-democratic regimes that are uh, uh, backing the, our anti-democratic regime um, uh, to a far extent are irrelevant to what is happening on the ground. As long as this uh, support is uh, happening, uh, they, they are now continuing to. Um, we are we are living under uh, airstrikes, under uh, under uh, the attack, and I think what what matters right now is uh, a ceasefire fire on the ground. Um, it, it does not matter if we're talking about whether they're going to go back to negotiations. Uh, I think there's a lot of talk in the international media and focus on uh, the framework agreement. Um, honestly, when we are when we hear that on the news, uh, it just seems like our lives are irrelevant. <laughs> Why are we focusing on an agreement that led us to the war uh, when what, we sh- what should be the priority right now is a ceasefire, opening safe routes for people to... Um, uh, be able to flee these um, uh, active conflict zones right now. Um, and and uh, what is written on paper right now does not matter when we have people um, under fire. Losing so their lives.
0: what led to this latest outbreak of violence and a lot of um, attacks on military installations, but they're throughout Khartoum, so that, of course, threatens many mm-hmm. civilians? Explain who these two forces are.
1: So the two forces are the uh, Sudanese Armed Forces and the Rapid Support Forces, uh, also known as the Janjaweed, which was legitimized by Omar um, al bashirs regime and further legitimized by the transitional government. Um, if, for, for for the Sudanese people, uh, what what uh, what matters is that uh, this is an accumulation of uh, what has happened during the al-Bashir's regime, what has happened during the transitional government, starting from the negotiations. Uh, it's an accumulation of allowing these forces to remain in power, uh, to remain um, having arms, uh, and 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 to remain a, a, a legitimate. Uh, um, Entity in Sudan uh, when uh, the Sudanese people have been on the ground chanting um, uh, the military back to its uh, barricades and the weed must be abolished.
0: And the revolt against Bashir was largely led by women. So, what are you demanding happens right now?
1: The, the, the demands of all the Sudanese people is a ceasefire, uh, opening safe routes and um, uh, most importantly a lesson out of this that we cannot uh, continue to legitimize uh, these powers, we cannot continue to uh, allow uh, the, the Sudanese armed forces to be in the political scene, uh, they need to return to their barricades uh, and um, w- we cannot continue to, uh, um, to to make little of uh, um, the lives of the Sudanese
0: people and the residents of Sudan. So, how do the uh, civilians—how is civilian power achieved in Sudan right now, military leader?
1: Um, Right now what needs to happen is a ceasefire before anything uh, else. What is happening on the ground actually is that the Sudanese people are the ones leading uh, efforts that could have been expected from a government if we had a government that is actually interested in the well-being of the people. Um, The the, the civilians are the ones who are um, rescuing people who are trapped um, in in risky zones. Uh, They are the ones who uh, are—we are the ones who are creating— Uh, makeshift ways of uh, receiving and delivering medical attention. Um, We are using our own personal vehicles to transport um, uh, the injured and anyone who is in need of medical attention. Um, and we are the ones who are coordinating the efforts of how to uh, cope with the situation, how to cope with the power outages, with the, with the water cuts. Um, it is civilians who have returned to work during this time uh, just for such emergencies uh, such as water cuts and, and power outages. We are not receiving any help, whether from uh, the the government, we're not even receiving statements to clarify what is happening. Um, All we're doing is guesswork from the ground. Uh, And we're not receiving any help from uh, UN entities or uh, or international community. Uh, We are our own government right now helping ourselves and um, absolutely not paying attention to the statements of uh, the government because they have been proved to be um, absolutely not credible.
0: Well, Marina El-Neal, we thank you so much for taking this time to speak to us. Sudanese activists currently in the capital, Khartoum. Please stay safe. We will continue to follow the story, of course. Next up, we go to a leading Ugandan LGBTQ activist who risked his life by traveling to the United States to speak out against a recently passed bill in Uganda that criminalizes anyone identifying as LGBTQ. Stay with us. And the new batons. This is Democracy Now! democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn to Uganda, where lawmakers recently passed a sweeping new measure that makes it a crime to identify as LGBTQ and even allow for the death sentence in certain cases. The bill declares all same-sex conduct as non-consensual, makes it a crime to quote promote homosexuality enforces all residents of Uganda, including family members and doctors, to report anyone who's in a same-sex relationship. Uganda's parliament passed the measure in March. By a near-unanimous vote, the bill is now awaiting the signature of Uganda's president. Last week, I spoke to one of the leading LGBTQ activists in Uganda, Frank Mugisha, the executive director of Sexual Minorities Uganda. He was visiting Washington, D.C. I asked him to talk about the new legislation.
2: Uh, The legislation that has been um, passed by our parliament that is pending the signature of the president is one of the most extreme legislations, anti-gay legislations, to be passed in Africa. This legislation would compel any person who knows an LGBTQ person to report them to the authorities. A Catholic like myself, if I confess to my priest, my priest has to report me to the authorities. Any person who goes to seek treatment from a health practitioner, they would have to report them to the authority. This law further would criminalize any landlord who provides housing to an LGBTQ person. This law would outlaw the work I am doing on speaking out for LGBTQ persons, but also it would criminalize anything I post on my social media that advocates or promotes the human rights of LGBTQ persons. This this interview that I'm having now, if I had it in Uganda, the studio, the entity Myself would be criminalized. This legislation is here to erase the entire livelihood of the LGBTQ person in Uganda. Where does
0: the death penalty fit into this,
2: Frank Mugisha? Uh, the death penalty. First of all, it's it's important to note that the initial text of the bill did not have the death penalty, to show you how extreme. The members of the Ugandan parliament are. The death penalty was introduced during the debate. The death penalty would criminalize any person who engages in sexual acts with a minor or if someone is in authority. But let us not confuse the death penalty for only punishing people, pedophiles, or people who abuse children, the death penalty would criminalize any person who is a serial offender. It means that any person who breaks the law more than once under this legislation would be criminalized. If a landlord rents out their premises to no, a person who is known or perceived to be LGBTQ, and they are Convicted under this law more than once, they are defined as a serial offender. If any LGBTQ person who is living their life in Uganda breaks the law more than once, that could be speaking out, that could be identifying as LGBTQ, that could be two consenting adults. But as long as you're convicted more than once, then you become a serial offender, and you could be executed. What about two young people, two minors? The, that's very interesting. This law that the Ugandans, the Ugandan member of parliament, are saying is yet to protect children. This law would criminalize young queer persons. Young LGBTQ persons, and I'm saying young LGBTQ persons who are under the age of 18, to three years in prison if they identified as LGBTQ. Well, previously we have seen that young people, if they identified as LGBTQ, they could get frowned upon, they could get suspended from school or expelled from school. Right now, this law proposes that they should go to prison for three years, and three years in Uganda for a child. That is the maximum penalty under the Children's Act.
0: Now, already there is a ban on gay sex.
2: Is that right, Frank? There is already a law that criminalizes same-sex acts to life in prison. We have the sodomy laws that most of the African countries have That were unfortunately introduced by the British. Where is all of this
0: coming from? Talk about um, the trajectory of this increasing targeting, oppression of the LGBTQ community in
2: Uganda. The oppression we are seeing now in Uganda is not Ugandan at all. The hatred, the radicalization of the Ugandan population to hate and fear LGBTQ persons is not Ugandan at all. The Ugandan society has always lived with homosexual persons, as we, 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 we call homosexuals in Uganda, with LGBTQ persons in societies. They were never killed. They were never arrested. The homophobia and transphobia we are seeing towards queer and trans persons in Uganda is from the West. It is mostly peddled by extreme American evangelicals. Just last week, we had American evangelicals in Uganda attending a conference that was titled the Interparliamentary Conference on African Values. But the agenda for this conference was anti-gay and anti-gender. In fact, some of the African members of parliament who attended this conference are trying to introduce similar legislation in other countries. For example, Kenya, a member of parliament who attended this conference in Uganda that was heavily supported by American evangelicals, is now trying to introduce a similar legislation in Kenya, we are seeing these anti-gay uh, propaganda and anti-gay legislations moving around Africa. Ghana already has one. We are worried about other countries like Burundi, Tanzania that could, see, could introduce similar legislations.
0: The Washington Post recently ran an article headlined The U.S. Connection to Uganda's Kill the Gays Bill. I want to read from the article. It says, In 2020, London-based Open Democracy found that more than 20 American religious organizations advocating against LGBTQ rights, safe abortion, access to contraceptives, and comprehensive sex education had spent at least $54 million furthering their agendas in Africa since 2007. Close to half that figure was spent in conservative, predominantly Christian Uganda alone. That's the piece from the Washington Post. Frank, can you talk more about this and specifically about the U.S. evangelical pastor Scott Lively, who's told the Ugandan parliament that homosexuality is a Western imported
2: disease? Uh, Scott Lively is an American uh, evangelical pastor. And I'm sure many people in America, in the United States, may not know him. But in Uganda, he's famous. When he first traveled to Uganda and he publicly held meetings with politicians, Ugandan government officials, he told Ugandans homosexuality is a Western agenda that needs to be fought. He introduced Western excuse me, Western language that was not Ugandan. He introduced language of homosexuals promote homosexuality. He introduced language like homosexuals recruit children into homosexuality. He introduced language homosexuality is a Western agenda. This was not Ugandan language. This was language that was introduced to Ugandans by American uh, evangelical Scott Lively. We worked together with our partner, the Center for Constitutional Rights, CCR, to hold Scott Lively accountable. In fact, we went to court, and for the first time, a judge in Massachusetts said that persecution of LGBTQ persons could amount to crimes against humanity, and— for us, we exposed the hatred that Scott Lively was exporting to Uganda. Frank Mugisha, in 2011,
0: your friend David Cato, who's really considered the father of Uganda's gay rights movement, was bludgeoned to death. Can you talk about the kind of physical violence people face and if the situation has improved at all? And even though it is over a decade later, my deepest
2: condolences. Um, thank you so much. I mean, it was very painful, uh, but also worrying for many of us, when David, uh, my colleague David Cato was murdered. Uh, David Cato was murdered at his house, so that, you know, petrified me. And many people, indeed, were worried and scared for their own personal lives, but also for the safety of the community, uh, right Right after that, a few years later, the situation improved a bit for the LGBTQ community. But most recently, we've seen the situation get worse. Many LGBTQ persons in Uganda have been violated. Many LGBTQ persons in Uganda are getting arrested. There's an increase in blackmail and extortion. There's an increase of social exclusion. And right now, what we're seeing is not only crackdown on LGBTQ persons from law enforcement, but we're seeing harassment from ordinary Ugandans, ordinary Ugandans. We are worried that if this legislation is signed, we will see mob justice. We are seeing communities, for instance, raiding schools where perceived LGBTQ persons work. We are seeing workshops. And events getting raided, we are seeing people getting arrested for simply and getting undressed. Transgender persons on national television are getting addressed. So the situation has gotten worse in the past um, year and f- recent months. You know, you're
0: here in the United States now, um, lobbying, uh, educating people about what's happening in your country and Uganda and your continent, Africa. I wanted to get your impression of what's happening here. According to the ACLU, there have been 419 anti-LGBT laws introduced in the United States, just in this year alone. What message does this send to politicians in Uganda and Africa?
2: Uh, That is very good to note, first of all, to see that— The issue of homophobia, transphobia, the backlash the LGBT community is facing is not only an African problem, it's a global problem. So, Africa should not be seen as the only, you know, homophobic place, but homophobia and transphobia is happening, and it's increasingly uh, around the world now. Uh, The signal that these anti-gay legislations that are being introduced in the United States— is sending to Africa is not good, uh, because most and some of the text that we are seeing in some of the legislations, for example, in Uganda and, and other places in Africa, is similar to text of the legislations being introduced here. But for African politicians, this is good. This is good for them. They are using that in saying, we can even, even in developed countries, Homosexuality is not accepted. And I've seen videos of misinformation and disinformation circulating around, quoting some of the political leaders, uh, saying they don't support homosexuality. And, you know, so the politicians— in Africa, will use anything homophobic and transphobic to try and justify what they are doing. That's Frank Mugisha,
0: one of the leading LGBTQ activists in Uganda, executive director of Sexual Minorities Uganda. Uganda's parliament passed the anti-LGBT measure in March by a near-unanimous vote. The bill is now awaiting the signature of Uganda's president. Visit democracynow.org to see the full interview with Frank Mugisha. Next up, Not Too Late, Changing the Climate Story from Despair to Possibility. Stay with us. Wave by the Ahmad Trio, the legendary pianist, died on Sunday at the age of 92. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We look now at the push to address the climate crisis. As environment ministers with the G7, the group of seven richest countries, just finished a meeting in Japan on the global energy crisis, ahead of a G7 leaders summit in Hiroshima next month. This is Japan's environment minister. Russia's invasion
4: of Ukraine has had a significant negative impact on the global environment and energy issues that we are working on, and the importance of cooperation among the G7, which leads the international community, is heightening again.
0: Ministers agreed to drastically expand offshore wind power by 2030 and accelerate the phase-out of fossil fuels. But they failed to set a timeline to phase out coal-fired power plants, which are seen as key to reaching critical carbon emissions goals set by the Paris Climate Accord. This comes as a recent study finds current commitments by countries to— wind down the use of coal-fired power, are likely not enough to meet key targets to stop the planet from warming three degrees Celsius by the end of the century, unless far more coal plants shut down in the next five years. For more, we're joined by two people, writer and activist Rebecca Solnit, whose latest project is a book she co-edited titled Not Too Late, Changing the Climate Story from Despair to possibility. We're also joined by the longtime Filipino climate activist Renato Red Constantino, who is an essay in the book that's titled How the Ants Move the Elephants in Paris, about the role he and others played in the Paris Accord. He's deputy chair of the expert advisory group of the Climate Vulnerable Forum. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Rebecca Solnit, let's begin with you. What gives you hope at this dire time when the, clim- when the planet is um, reeling from uh, global heating? Why do you say not too late?
3: A lot of people think it's too late to do anything about the problem. A lot of people have given up or think that we're supposed to give up because there's nothing we can do. There's so much we can do in this moment, and doing it matters for the next 10,000 years of life on Earth. We're in the decade of decision. The scientists at the IPCC, the organizers, the policy people, know what we need to do. Thelma and I, when we put this book together, wanted to build essentially an on-ramp to activism and engagement, a recognition that we have the solutions, and to also address the emotional impact, because it is devastating— And deeply wrong, but one of our sort of axioms we've settled on is despair is an emotion we respect, but it's not an analysis. And so we bring analysis, uh, kind of emotional support, incredible stories like Red's of how the ants move the elephants at Paris, and encouragement, a word that means to instill courage, for people to participate in deciding the future. There's a real sense, particularly in the United States, I think, that The future has already been decided. People in this country love certainty, but so much of it is what we're doing in the present to decide it now. And so, we wanted to address the emotional side of things, and we wanted to encourage uh, full participation, which is what will bring us the best—I'm sorry—which is what will bring us the best-case scenario and steer us away from the worst-case scenarios.
0: Well, um, Renato Constantino, also known as Red, I mean, your essay in this book, Not Too Late, to say the least, is deeply inspiring. I mean, we've covered so many U.N. climate summits. Uh, beginning each year, it seems, there is another storm in the Philippines, and um, You wrote this piece, How the Ants Move the Elephants in Paris, talking about the 2015 uh, Paris Climate Accord. Um, There are projections that say we'll be past 1.5 degrees by 2030. Um, In your essay, um, um, many considered 1.5 percent, uh, 1.5 degrees unachievable, not because of science, but because of politics. The re- representatives of elite NGOs viewed that limit with disdain. Some even lobbied leaders supporting vulnerable country governments to quash efforts to advance the more ambitious climate goal, claiming this was in order not to harm global consensus. And yet, talk about the story of 2015 Paris Agreement and how you and other activists succeeded um, in setting a limit, whether or not it's being respected.
5: Um, thank, thanks, first of all, for having me on this program. Uh, and yes, uh, completely, it was uh, a great, uh, with great happiness that I accepted the invitation to contribute to this book because. We believe very strongly, very deeply in its title, that it's not only not too late, but it's also urgent that we turn the narratives and stories about the climate uh, crisis into one of possibility, rather than the, the very luxury that no one can afford, especially vulnerable people, despair, No one can afford it. That's too expensive, because you all are counseled to just lean back on lawn chairs, thinking that doom is uh, around the corner, rather than understanding that we're already facing various degrees of collapse, at the same time as we're facing a resurgence again, new waves of anger and hope and celebration that we can turn things around and that when people start working with one another and small countries band with uh, other small countries, the ants really can move elephants. And uh, Paris, uh, of course, uh, was about 1.5. Um, there are scientific projections that we may breach this uh, threshold uh, by 2030, but there are also a lot of scientific studies that continue to come out saying that. Though we might breach it, we might also be able to bring it back down, if not below. But there will be a lot of hard work ahead. But hard work, difficulty, does not mean—as the other editor, Thelma Lutonatabwa, said—does not mean inevitable. It means it is possible, and we must chase it, just like in Paris. 1.5 was considered a romantic but ultimately doomed target. And the small nations and a lot of social movements just said, this is not a game. Our our, our, our boundaries are not bound by the politics of those who refuse to let go of their own uh, economic status and lifestyles. Our politics is bound by what our conception is of survival and also our ability to thrive. And that will always drive um, an insurgency uh, across talks that— while they may get bogged down, there are so many instances in the past that show that the status quo can be overturned and will be overturned if we only bite down on our mouthpiece, so to speak, and fight the good fight, um, without any guarantee, except a guarantee that we will fight harder and stronger and smarter as we become wiser and uh, uh, as we grow in terms of uh, our heft and uh, public's, uh, the public's participation.
0: And why you're in Washington, D.C. right now, from the Philippines, dealing with the IMF, the International Monetary Fund?
5: Um, the IMF is a critical institution. Uh, the Bretton Woods institutions uh, need to play a far more uh, relevant role, uh, because they were set up ostensibly uh, to, to manage uh, uh, a global crisis, uh, and they have neglected climate change for so long. Uh, and still think that the solutions uh, that we need today are, uh, are are reforms that may might actually perpetuate uh, the same order. However, things are really changing rapidly because they see that proposals from the past will will not work simply because it's a. Um, a reinvention of uh, uh, of tools that uh, and measures that have brought us to this crisis in the first place. They're confronting the fact that the world economy needs to transform rapidly, but also that the big countries, especially the rich countries, need to play fair, stop cheating, uh, and uh, to start uh, uh, taking action in a far greater way even as their responsibility lies beyond simple uh, domestic uh, emissions reductions. They also need to play a bigger role in terms of allowing uh, vulnerable countries to transition faster uh, and uh, achieve prosperity. Survival is not enough. Uh, We need to do more than survive. We need to thrive as well, and the IMF certainly uh, has has a role to play here in terms of Um, Ensuring debt relief, and in terms of ensuring that there's a universal surveillance of the transition risks and physical climate risks that every economy is facing today, in order to trigger a revaluation of assets, from fossil fuels to infrastructure to um, uh, investment strategies that build resilience, Um, the entire economics uh, and uh, the entire way of measuring Development will have to be uh, um, changed in in a comprehensive way, but we cannot wait for anything perfect. So we have to keep moving the inches, knowing that when we do the inches, leaps uh, in terms of miles uh, become possible as well.
0: Rebecca Solna, you say climate deniers are not really the main problem. And, of course, it seems like um, there are many more in the United States than in other places. So, talk about what is the problem and a framework for change.
3: The good news is that there's been a lot of surveys
0: recently that show that globally
3: and nationally in the U.S., the majority of people take climate change very seriously. They want to see action. They want to see investment, etc. But in the problem we face isn't really an environmental problem. It's not a problem of physics. We have the solutions. It's a political problem. We need civil society, cli- the climate movement to become more powerful than the vested interests, the stagnation of the status quo to push for the swift transition that is not impossible but will be difficult, will require kind of radical uh, shift in our priorities a huge investment on profound transformation uh, ultimately for the better and so it's really about not about the t- the minority of climate deniers you know people in this country often think that we need to be evangelists and convert our enemies but what we really need to do is rally our friends if we can get enough participation and we learn this from history um from the civil rights movement from the women's suffrage movement etc we need the critical momentum to overcome those vested interests, that, that stagnation, that incomprehension by the gerontocracy that runs this country, and to do what needs to be done. And so, as Thelma and I keep saying, difficult is not impossible. We put this together partly because we're nice ladies and we don't want people to feel worse than they should about the situation, but also really as a kind of enlistment manual uh, and a toolkit to send people um, into action to understand what we can do, how to do it, uh, respect and admire the people doing it already, so many of whom are in this book as extraordinary voices, and to do this thing, because, as I said before, this is the decade of decision. And we need as many people as possible engaged as fully as possible, constructively.
0: When you look at something like Biden signing off on the Willow Project in northern Alaska, um, and yet also pushing solar and wind and being seen as a major climate change president, how do you reconcile these two? And there's two things worth saying about that. One is that it sort of
3: feels like Obama's all of the above. And I always feel like it's like talking to somebody saying, I'm, I'm drinking strychnine, but I'm also drinking carrot juice. And the carrot juice is not going to undo the strychnine. You have to, you know, stop drinking the poison. You have to stop the fossil fuel expansion. We already have more fossil fuel sites being exploited than the climate can tolerate. But the other thing about it, I, last night I was with Antonia Juhas, who I know has been on the show often, a brilliant, oil policy analyst, a contributor to this book and a longtime friend of mine. And she's saying, despite Willow, the fossil fuel industry is essentially in decline. It's weak. It's fragile in many ways. We can defeat it. But again, we have to be more powerful than the status quo and the vested interests. And that's entirely possible, but it does require— you know, profound engagement, uh, expansion of what has been a growing climate movement, gro- growing in intersectionality, growing in strategy, growing in intelligence about what the pressure points are. And so, you know, I know Earth Justice and other, other organizations have filed lawsuits against Willow. It's not guaranteed to happen. But we also need administrations that don't even try to do that, that to say, yeah, this was in the pipeline, yeah, the permits are— We're in place, but we're going to do a 180 and cancel things like that. We need to be uh, on an emergency footing rather than business as usual. I think they approved it because it was a sort of business as usual thing, and they didn't feel the pressure to disrupt it. We need to be that pressure to disrupt.
0: Finally, we just have 30 seconds, but what do you hope to accomplish with this book that you co-edited?
3: I want to give everyone, including newcomers and young people, encouragement to look at the possibilities, to know that there's a lot we can do, to know that the future is not yet written. We're writing it with what we do or fail to do in the present, and to do everything they can.
0: Rebecca Solnit, we want to thank you for being with us, co-editor with Thelma young Lutinatabua of the new book, Not Too Late changing the climate story from despair to possibility. Also thank you to Renato Red constantino longtime Filipino climate activist, who has an essay featured in the book. That does it for our show, Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a digital fellow. Check out democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.